One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hello and welcome to the Red Box podcast from the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. This week, I've escaped the usual podcast studio to interview one politician who dramatically lost his seat in the 2015 general election and another who must quietly wish he had. Later, I'll join Ed Balls in a dance studio in East London as he struggles with his first Strictly routine and I'll be asking his dance partner, Katya, how he's really getting on. But first, we head to the office of Nick Clegg, the former Deputy Prime Minister and former Lib Dem leader, who's now one of just eight MPs the party has left after the general election disaster last year. Nick, sitting here, we, I can see Big Ben out your win, outside your window. You've got a plum office for a backbench MP. Is there ever part of you that wishes you lost your seat last year? No, there really isn't. Really, really isn't. I mean, well, <laughs> I have mixed feelings as I see Ed Balls whisking catcher across the <laughs> dance floor. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure I'd ever be as brave enough as he's, he's being. So I don't have sort of dreams in that direction. But no, I, um, I genuinely like uh, constituency work. I know MPs always say it, but I, I do. And actually, that, 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 does, that does not entirely go on the back burner, but you can do less of it while you're in government. So I've actually enjoyed getting you know, under the skin of lots of local issues in Sheffield Hallam again. And my, um, you know, God, not, notwithstanding all the uh, roller coaster stuff I've experienced, my, my interest in and passion for politics is, is as great now as it ever was. And, of course, we're going through this, in my, in my view, unprecedented and somewhat bizarre turn in British politics. So, you know, whilst I'm not obviously in the trenches or on the front line to, to, to nonetheless participate in it if from a sort of altered, uh, altered perch, different perch, is still something which really interests me. Did you feel guilty at all about the fact you were one of the eight that survived and so no. many other people lost their seats? No, I would, I would have felt very bad if I'd lost my seat because I think, you know, I, I, you know, I, like, I like to think that myself, not just myself, but I think the Lib Dem team in Sheffield and Sheffield Hallam do a really good team. So a really good, uh, you know, Good um, work for local constituents. So, no, I would have, I would have felt you know even more rotten than I did already. <laughs> In the book Politics Between the Extremes, you talk about your dramatic transformation from sort of hero to zero, from the most popular politician since Winston Churchill to uh, what happened last year. And in particular, the, the you know for going from the Rose Garden in 2010 to the Senate in 2015, where after everybody had sort of resigned as leaders, you all then had to go and stand at the. Yeah, it's very very British. So exactly. So you have this. Or, you know, you have this momentous, I suppose, and, and spectacularly victorious from David Cameron's point of view, and calamitous from my and Ed, Ed Miliband's point of view. Um, event: I resign, Nigel Farage resigned, and of course, unresigned. <laughs> Ed Miliband resigned, and then we all assemble in a room in the Foreign Office. We just can't make it up. It's just so. It's it's straight out of a sort of. Uh, it's like Trollopian, the whole thing, and um, then we just stand there and everyone pretends. 
that you know you just make nothing's happening. You make you make small talk about the weather and uh, past, well. past the milk please. Yeah, well, <laughs> anything happened? <laughs> Uh, it's it's uh, it's that good old British thing sometimes where people find it just too awkward to talk about what everyone's thinking, um, but that and that was certainly the mood there. But that, in a weird kind of way, I mean that was probably just as well because well, you, you had to do something that morning. So that's that like as morning, good as so anything else. Yeah. What do you think, looking back, with the benefit of eighteen months since the general election? What do you think was the the worst thing that happened when you were in government? What, what do you think? The thing I regret the well, regret. You mean in terms of the sort of liberal... Yeah, yeah, yeah. in terms of liberal role in the government. Um, no, I, th- I think the, the thing that I, in many ways, with, and increased with greater clarity, with greater hindsight, appreciate is that at the beginning of the coalition government, um, as I explain in the, in, in, uh, in the book, the government was formed on two pillars uh, to respond to two major crises. One was an economic crisis, the 2008 crash and, and, and all of the fallout, and the other major crisis was a political one, which was the MPs' expenses. It's amazing how short people's memories yeah. are. I mean, that yeah, yeah. It absolutely dominated the 2010 general election, more than the problems in the banking system or the fiscal crisis, in many respects, uh, uh, did. And I think one of the reasons why the coalition made such compelling sense, certainly in the, all, in the early days, was that it was a government composed, yes, of two parties, but addressing those two crises. So we made big promises about sorting out the public finances, stabilising the banking system. We made big promises about cleaning up politics, making sure that MPs' expenses, those scandals were put behind us, and we turned a new leaf in Westminster. And if you look back at it with the benefit of hindsight, what I regret immensely was that whilst, I think, um, the Liberal Democrats largely stuck with the commitment on the former, sorting out helping to start sort out the economy the Conservatives and in my view very cynically with the connivance of the Labour Party um, skewered every single commitment not only in the coalition agreement but in their own manifestos the Labour and Conservative manifestos to introduce the political reforms that they had finally felt compelled to to promise after the MPs expenses so the, the balance of kind of political reform and economic reform uh, was lost because political reform basically got got sort of strangled at birth by both the two larger parties. And this was things like the Labour Party was committed to AV, it was committed to House of Lords reform. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, 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 came, comic, the comic irony has to be, the height of it all has to be, when a government composed of Liberal Democrats and Conservatives, neither of whom advocate <laughs> AV in their own manifestos, put forward AV, which was in the Labour Party manifesto, to the British people, what does Ed Miliband do? instead of actually taking the opportunity of changing the system yeah. in the way that his party had explicitly said they wanted to, of course they, perhaps unsurprisingly, they just played short-term games uh, and started sort of laying into us rather than making the case for the reform that they advocated. So the whole thing, and, you know, party funding reform, of course, both the trade unions and the big money from the city, if from totally different directions, kind of uh, dug their heels in to make sure that didn't happen. House of Lords, even more farcical, because that's been, I don't know how many <laughs> manifestos of all parties now, um, but anyway, look, the, the, but the wider point I'm trying to make is that the coalition was, a, was not only politically balanced, it was balanced in trying to address the two big issues that really bothered the British people. And we did one, not in full, but we, we stuck to it, and the other one basically got the rug pulled out from under our feet. To what extent do you think, because throughout the five years of the coalition, every time there were some bad Lib Dem local election results or European results, you and your team would say oh we're, but locally we're dug in or you know and you were still there you were still there in government so there's a sort of slight sense that 
everything was going to be all right on the night. Do you think that ultimately the result of the, the outcome of the 2015 election for the Lib Dems was basically decided the moment you went into government? No. The, no, the I, I, I totally just, I know there's some people who say that because it's convenient for them to say that. <laughs> I've actually read in some of the so-called reviews of the book, which have nothing to do with the book and all to do with people's personal likes or dislikes about the coalition. But some people say, you know, the, the seeds of the kind of 2015 general election were sown the moment they, Nick Clegg walked into Downing Street. Absolute rubbish. Um, if the SNP sort of threat, if I can put it that way, uh, and if, the, if, if Ellen Middleband's ambivalence towards the SNP had not arisen in the way that it had done in the general election, there would have been a significantly different outcome yeah. for us. Of course we still would have lost seats. We still would have been, you know, rocked back on our heels. But the wipeout that happened, particularly in parts of the southwest, was not entirely, but was in many ways explained by the electric effect that the kind of fear message that Linton Crosby, and of course supported by the sort of Tory supporting echo chamber in the press, delivered into the homes and living rooms and kitchens of thousands of voters who in England were petrified of this prospect of the country basically being run by a somewhat hapless Ed Miliband in number 10 Downing Street uh, on, the ed- on the end of Alex Salmon's you know, puppet strings. That's, that had an electric effect and we felt it, we felt it on the yeah. ground. Um, and we saw it, our, our canvassers were reporting this. So I think, actually, at the very start of the election campaign, our, our sort of pitch of moderation, of getting the balance right, but in getting, you know, sorting out the public finances, but doing it fairly, made a lot of sense. We were completely walloped, in addition to all the kind of cuts and bruises we were carrying after 15, 15, sorry, 15, well, that'd be something, five years of coalition, because of this very, very effectively delivered fear message. But you, you did talk about how you, some of your pitch ended up as being just a little more than a split the difference approach, that you, the heart and head, we were sort of not as extreme as the toys on one side, not as extreme, and you didn't put forward the liberal, the, the, the sort of strong liberal case. Well, look, I would encourage people to read the book. What I'm saying is that, that was, in a sense, the only... That was it, that sort of message of balance, of moderation, of restraint, you know, that we would restrain a, a Labour Party from screwing up the economy, and we would restrain a Conservative government or a Conservative Party-only government from, you know, beating up on the poor. Um, that was something that we quite rightly highlighted, A, because, of course, it had a significant grain of truth, and secondly, it's something that the public recognised. What the public did not recognise, and there was no point us pretending that they would at that late stage, were the various kind of uh, reformist liberal achievements that we had chalked up over the five years but the difficulty I think for future participants or students of coalition is that if you look at not just our coalition but at coalitions across and I I devote a whole chapter to this across Europe and elsewhere I'm afraid it's the same pattern over and over again the smaller party particularly if it's a sort of a smaller party from the progressive wing going into coalition with a party on the centre-right, time and time again, cops all the blame for the bad stuff, gets no credit for the good stuff. And, and so we've got, a real, you know, we've got a real sort of challenge, because I think coalition politics will return in sh- some shape or form. But it can't, it can't work if, unfortunately it seems to be the case, not just in Britain, but in other systems where coalition have occurred, if it results in a kind of act of Harry Kiry, noble or otherwise, by the smaller party. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I wrote a whole sort of... In, in, in the Netherlands, I actually entitled my chapter this. In the Netherlands, they call it Burgemeester in Orlog, yeah. which means literally mayor in wartime. And, and they say smaller parties in the Netherlands go into coalition. And like a mayor, a Dutch mayor who's trying to do the best for his or her community during Nazi 
occupation, they'll always be condemned as being traitors for kind of staying in post, even though they're trying to do the best that they can. I'm not (laughs) trying to uh, make any parallel between the Conservative Party and the Nazi occupation, but you you know what I mean. Of course not. But, you know, it's an interesting phraseology that they they understand how invidious it is for a smaller party in coalition. Um, one thing that strikes me in your book, but also in David Law's book, is and his account of the coalition, is how sort of isolated you seemed at times. In that you're, you, you sometimes look like you were the one trying to make the positive case for what the Lib Dems were doing, while Vince Cable was going around grumbling about the economic policy from the Treasury. Uh, Chris Hume, while he was in government, tend to be more interested in whether or not Chris Hume was in the papers rather than picking up the Lib. Did you did you feel that? Did you feel like you were? The only person banging the drum against the, you know, the quite, quite well, a big toy machine. Look, I don't whinge about it. That's what you do as a leader. I mean, if you're a leader, you 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 can't. You know, you, if you're a leader of any party, particularly if you're a leader under pressure and doing difficult things, you can't. You, you can't go around and be a sort of commentator as well as a participant. You are a participant. You're a leader. You're trying to shape opinion and lead opinion and persuade. You're not. You don't have the luxury. And I never had the luxury, nor did I seek to have the luxury to sort of be both participant. And sort of commentator. Now I find I have the freedom <laughs> to do that, and it's great. It's a yeah. lovely, it's, it's a lovely freedom to have when you don't have responsibilities either in government or leading a party. You can you can talk more loosely, and of course, and I quite understand that the media and the public like that. But but equally, I think it's important to recognise that if you're you know if you're in the hot seat, you can't just sort of sit there and muse over. Well, actually, maybe I you know yeah. Maybe, but that's that. Did you ever consider sacking Vince? I mean, whether it was over his no. differences on economic policy or even after the... No, I didn't. I didn't. And look, leading a team in politics is like a leading a team in any other walk of life. You must work with the people you've got. And of course, there might be some people you just find ready to work with. But most of the time, what is important to do is to work to people's strengths. That's what I t- tend to do in general in life. I don't see there's much point kind of, you know, whinging about people's flaws. I have as many flaws as anybody else. And Vince, and I'm sure he'd be the first to recognise this, you know, one of his strengths was, you know, he, he just wasn't someone I could say, go on, do a shift in the boiler room. He just wasn't like that. And that's why actually securing for him an important uh, department with significant responsibilities was exactly the right thing to do. And he devoted himself, uh, you know, fully to that. And, and I, was very, I was happy with that. He was happy with that. And we kind of, you know, we, we kind of understood that there was a division of labour that worked. And what about the Oakshot plot when his friend Matthew Oakshot was polling to try and prove the party would do better with him as leader rather than you? Did you not? Did you not think that that was a crunch point for your relationship with him? Well, Vincent, he didn't know about it. He was appalled when he found out. And again, in the same way that I just find it slightly pointless to sort of speculate on, you know, how, you know, people sort of the downsides of certain people's. Everyone, we all yeah. have downsides, and always trying to work with the upsides of the characters you work with. Equally, if Vince said to me he didn't know, I believed it then and I believe it now. Let's move on to the other people you had to work with in government. David Cameron. Uh, you've been quite critical, well, you've been very critical since of his decision to call the referendum. You said you'll forever be remembered as the Prime Minister who presided over collapse in Britain, standing the world and possibly the breakup of the UK itself. Do you wish you'd been more forceful? Because your argument was always that you'd legislated in 2011, that there would be an EU referendum if powers were... Transferred more powers transferred to Brussels. Do you think we should be more forceful with him in telling what a, what a terrible idea it would be to have any sort of referendum, or was he just more interested in managing his? No, I don't think he's, I don't think was, I don't think he could have had any doubt in front of it. What my view was, 
And the reason I am critical in public is because I was very critical in private too. And, um, you know, the book, for those people who want to read the book to find, you know, my endless personal views on David Cameron, they'll be disappointed. I haven't. I mean, I, I don't believe in that. It's not the kind of book I'd want to write. And there's a lot that I liked and admired about it. But on this particular issue... Uh, I mean, the, only fleetingly, I know, you know, the, the, the Conservatives at one point tried to persuade me that, you know, maybe we, as a coalition, could make an undertaking to hold a referendum. After all, you know, the Liberal Democrats have always said that a referendum should be held when there's a new treaty. That's not that different to sort of holding one, um, you know, at a, at a time of our own choosing. And I was very, very clear. I saw a world of difference, I think, then. So I think now, and I thought there's a world of difference between saying to the British people look, here's a bunch of new powers we're being asked to give up to Brussels. There's a new treaty we have to sign. It's your job to do it, not Parliament. Because then at least let people know what the exam question is, that there's a bridge we have to cross, a big question we need to you know, answer. There's a world of difference between that and sort of, in a sense, having a referendum at a random timetable to suit the needs of the political management of the Conservative Party. And I'm critical publicly because... Cameron knows, because he heard it from me several times, that's exactly my view it was in government. And that's why... It did not happen in coalition, and why it would never have happened, well, I certainly would not have supported a government uh, if I'd been in a position, which obviously wasn't, uh, to choose to do so or not, if that was the price of the government. Because I just, I would never have wanted to have on my conscience uh, the kind of almost accidental exit of the United Kingdom from the European Union, driven uh, by forces which had very little to do with the country and all to do with the this ancient and all-consuming uh, split within the Conservative Party, which, by the way, still isn't allayed. I mean, it's going to—I'd say it's going to just going to be recycled in a new form. You watch the, the cry of betrayal from the <laughs> Tory, which is just a, which is murmuring at the moment, is going to increase, increase, increase. Poor Leo Fox is going to discover he hasn't got a job, which he doesn't because he can't he can't strike any of these. Apparently, I think he's now allowed to have informal consultations with the Australians. What is it? Yeah, once every twice every year. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, it's going to become increasingly embarrassing, A, that the government doesn't know how to engineer Brexit, B, that the key proponents in government have got nothing to do, and all the while they're going to have a Conservative Party getting, or parts of it getting, ever more restive. So so for all of those reasons, no, I, I, on that, I mean, much as I can imagine David Cameron, when he produces his book, he'll tell you he's very critical of something I did on politics, but... Uh, you know, what did you think? What did you think when you saw him resigning the morning after? Oh, look, my heart goes out to him and to Sam and to the kids as people. You know, I got to know Cam- Cameron well, and he got to know me well. So, of course, I have. You'd have to be, have a heart of stone not to feel sympathy as a, as a human being, but as a politician and as someone who passionately believes that we shouldn't, have, you know, have chosen to leave the European Union. Uh, the European Union I'm afraid I, of course, of course I do. You know, I'm not going to paper over that. I'm not going to varnish over that. What about Theresa May? Um, she hardly gets a mention in your book, but you worked, you know, but she's, she's a sort of great unknown. Nobody really I hate knows. to break it to you, this book was not actually about the Conservatives no, 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 or you, Conservative you, personalities. You were, uh, you, were sitting, you sat around the cabinet table with her yeah. for five years. Yes. She's a sort of great unknown. She's yeah. become Prime Minister without anybody really knowing yes. what she thinks about anything. How traceless she, rise. How she operates. Yeah. What, what, what's, your, what's your take on her? Much as you might imagine. Um, she's very diligent, very hard-working, uh, gets herself steeped in the, in the details of things. It can be pretty tough, pretty stubborn. What I just don't know, uh, and I really think the jury is out, is you know, she was very accustomed to running a department, uh, as in a sense her own sort of political personal fiefdom, at her rhythm, at her pace, in the way that she wants. And you just, it is a completely different skill to be a Prime Minister, or dare I say, even a Deputy Prime Minister, where 
I know she's just done this recently, but she can maybe do it once, go to a summit and say to the Chinese president, I'm sorry, I haven't had my briefings yet, so I can't tell you, you know, what we're going to do with Hinckley or say to, you know, Obama, well, I don't really know what to do, but, you know, I'll get back to you, mate. <laughs> well, you can do that if you're a departmental secretary of state, and many of the kind of levers are in your control. You really can't do that when you are, you know, leading a country and you have to respond to all sorts of things which are beyond your control. We have to manage... So I don't know yet whether she's got the sort of multitasking flair, the fleet of foot imagination that I think you need at the very... I think it's a much, much more different job than people uh, expect. I found her sort of ideologically a very conventional conservative, you know, on security she was very conventional. But I have to say to you, one thing I did find about her, while while she and I clashed a lot, as you might imagine, on things that... where we conflicted, you know, Snoopers, Charter and so on... Uh, and they were sometimes pretty drawn-out kind of debates and arguments. What I liked about her is if you struck a sort of deal with her, even if it was an agreement or, a, or, a, or, a, or an arrangement or a, or a policy decision she didn't really like, she did stick to it. She a did, did a deal was a deal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. One of the, th- the things she had some criticism for last week was a slightly leaden jokes at PMQs, and there was a, some pieces in the papers about politicians telling jokes and mm. various people have suggested that you're not you weren't necessarily Whitehall's best joke teller well I don't know who these people are <laughs> they really they obviously haven't seen my very best after dinner version but I'll tell you what I'll tell you the slightly more serious reply to uh, I have seen over and over and over again that uh, the, 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 the strengths and virtues of politicians almost always end up being also the kind of reason why people criticise a politician so that the virtues of Theresa May now, she takes her time, she doesn't explain herself in full, she sort of slightly disappears out of sight and sort of very methodically works through stuff, you know, kind of hoards all the information around her. All of that is now seen as a great breath of fresh air compared to the sort of slightly more seat-of-your-pants type stuff of David Cameron. I guarantee you, within a few months and years, it'll be seen, you know, why doesn't she come out and tell the British people this? Why doesn't she not react quickly enough? I mean, in a weird kind of way, what's now seen as a refreshing change will quite quickly be seen as a as, as a flaw. What, what's the worst joke that you've ever told, which has landed badly, do you think? Oh, I did one during the election. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. The porn alien, what was it? What was it? It wasn't obviously in the delivery. It must have been. <laughs> it must have been. It must have been. It must have been. It must have been. No, I delivered it very badly. It was, um, that's right, it was Lance Armstrong. No, no, that wasn't during the general election. That's that was another terrible. No, that was a terrible. Oh, no, that was terrible. No, that was the worst, actually. No, that, no I do remember. I had to give a speech at, the, at, at a big, big black tie dinner in Leeds, in, in, in the magnificent hall in, in the Leeds city centre, uh, to uh, basically the, all the great and the good in Europe and possibly the world's sort of cycling uh, community. And there was the head of the Tour de, uh, the Tour de France, was the head of Tour de France from Yorkshire. And it was the week after Oprah Winfrey had given the... Given in, given in, done this interview with Lance Armstrong where he'd admitted he'd taken drugs. I thought, and no one talked about it. <laughs> and I thought, well, someone has to break the ice. So I made a joke about how Yorkshire having more hills and highs and lows and more highs than you'd find in Lance Armstrong's kit bag. Funny joke, right? Yeah, hilarious. Yeah, yeah. You could hear a pinging <laughs> Not only was the sign, it was a death sign. And then to make it even more excruciating, some very charitable soul decided to help me out by going <laughs> and laughing very loudly. But but one soul. The only thing worse than nobody laughing is one person. Yeah, laughing. one person laughing. You know? So that was the worst. Yes. So if not telling jokes, what happens now? You're, you've got the book, but lots of people say you know you you enjoy doing your LBC phoning. You've made some films for Newsnight and that sort of thing. Does a TV and radio career beckon for Nick Clegg? I honestly don't know what I'm going to do in the long run. I'm only, you know, I'm 50 in a few months' time. Uh, I've got some bags of energy. I've sort of caught my breath, which you have to, by the way. After it's, it's a it's a grueling thing, you know. I don't complain about this. It's all, it'll be the same now for Osborne and Cameron. They'll be going through the same. You know, you rediscover all sorts of things that you just haven't had time to do. What's, what, what's, what have you rediscovered, which you most enjoyed? You just, I tell you what. Other than music, it's been wonderful. Just pottering around, just not <laughs> feeling every minute is that you have to be somewhere else or doing yeah, something yeah. else or reading something else. Just literally just a sort of elastic time where you don't have to fit it every single minute. That's, that's the big... Because your, your, your mental universe does change. If you know, I was eight, nine years, party leader, and then yeah. if every single minute of your day, every weekend and every holiday is interrupted, is, is kind of... Is, is accounted for, you forget the wonderful human virtue of just sometimes just kind of mulling off of stuff. Yeah, yeah pottering. Yeah. So, um, and that's very good for the soul, I think. So, uh, once I've, I'm through my pottering phase, yeah. um, uh, and I will uh, obviously, you know, need to make a decision in, in a couple of years' time, I guess, or thereabouts, or a year or so, but whether I'm going to stand in the 2020 yeah. election. I may, I may, I've hugely enjoyed, but I've got a little bit more time to make up my mind. Before I go, I've got to ask you about the Carly Rae Jepsen video that you recorded of Carly Rae. It'll never, ever be seen. Not even for charity? No. Raising funds for the no. Dems? No, no. What did you think? Listen, if you... I, I'm still bridling at your accusation that I can't tell good jokes. I don't think that's true. <laughs> but I, I can tell you that I'm not the greatest dancer. Well, I'm enthusiastic. And it's even worse than that. I'm as bad as I'm enthusiastic at dancing. And I do not want in any shape or form for that to be something... Why did you think it was a good idea to do it in the first place? Search me. (laughs) But we're never going to see it. Never. Nick Clegg, thank you very much. Thank you. So now we leave Westminster behind and we head to a dance studio in Old Street, East London. A far cry from the green benches of the Commons, but also, frankly, a long way from the shiny floors and glitter balls of the Strictly studio. I began by asking Ed Balls, how did it come to this? Goodness knows, Matt. Can you believe that here we are with me wearing felt-soled dancing shoes 
and, um, and leisure wear talking to the dance studio. It's, um, uh, the funny thing is, we just popped out for lunch. If I'd gone in in a suit, I'd have had people um, wanting to talk politics, but I walk in wearing this get-up and um, people just think it's another crazy creative from Shoreditch. So, uh, so before we talk politics, how is Strictly going? It's really tough, actually, and completely wild. Um, but all of the photos and glitter and kind of preparation for the uh, lawn show are now out of the way and we're properly into the training, which is, I think, the best part because to learn to dance and to get fit and I've got a brilliantly um, professional and talented but very driven uh, partner who's, who's showing me the ropes. But it's draining and in a different way to how I expected. I thought it would be um, physically tiring, but the hard thing is... Uh, that concentrating on trying to do all the different things you're supposed to do at the same time when you've got no experience at all and therefore no instinct for it is um, it's it's shattering. So what what dance are you doing? I can't tell you. you can't tell me because okay. it comes on the BBC a week on Saturday and we have to um, with everything with strictly there's yeah. a sort of a build up and then a reveal. Yeah. But it will be. Um, I hope it will be okay. Have you ever tried it before? Dancing. No, this this dance that you're doing. Have you ever tried it before? Like this? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so not. And what about the fake tan? Have you got to see the fake tan? You, you, you said you tried to rule it out, but well, are they going to get to you before the, before the big show? I'm still, um, I'm still very conflicted about this fake tan thing because, uh, you know, I joked that I wasn't going to do any Latin dancing because my hips don't move properly, but it was explained to me very clearly that conceptually that doesn't fit with the show. You can't choose what you do. <laughs> and, uh, and I was also a bit worried about being too sparkly, but they gave me some spangles for my first dance. But I always thought the fake tan was, was, was a made-up. And then I then thought it was optional. And, but Katya says, well, I think you should have one. I said, really? I'm not sure I want the fake tan. And I then saw Jeremy Vine the BBC presenter who was on last year, and he said, I had one from the first week. <laughs> You've got to throw yourself into it, Ed. In fact, it turns out Jeremy Vine um, believed the jokes from the professional dancers and did his fake tan entirely in the buff, entirely nude. Even though you only need your hands and your face done, basically. He, he, <laughs> there no bit of Jeremy Vine went unbronzed on his first show. Well, like before, let, let's move off of that, because that's, that's too awful to think they about. They talk about a reveal on Twitter, but that would be a reveal too far. I'm not sure that would keep you in or get, or get you kicked out. <laughs> you, um, what are your chances, do you think, of surviving the first week? My chances of surviving the first week are 100% because nobody gets a Ah, oh, so you get another go. But then the following week, um, we, uh, we do a second dance, and the judges' comments over the two weeks are added together, and also the public vote, and somebody goes in the first week. And uh, I don't know, really, I would love to get through the first week because you don't want to stop this quickly. And um, Blackpool is the end of November, and at that point, I think the number of competitors goes down from eight until seven. Now, uh, I started out in this thinking that I had no idea if I could do this, but I'd really like to get to halfway. And um, <laughs> after the opening show, I think at the moment, um, there's quite a lot of expectation that I will be an early... Uh, an sometimes, early sometimes the terrible dancer does quite... People get behind the, the sort of underdog. You could I, be the new Anne Whitaker. The thing is, you see, I don't want to be <laughs> I don't really want to be. As much as, of course, I love and respect Anne Whitaker and John Sargent. Um, what I, would, I think the thing about Strictly is that whether you come in as a total novice or somebody who's danced for 15 years, the question is, do you get better? And do you get in the spirit and give it a go? And I'm not going to joke around. I mean, it's obviously 
great laugh yeah. and you have to um, there's a bit of comedy to it but fundamentally what I want to do is try and dance and I'd love to do some moves and I'd love people to say actually you know week by week he's got better um, and so that's why we're working really hard I did um, four hours this morning before lunch before you came along and uh, 18 hours last week we'll do more this week so I'm going to put the hours in if nothing else I'll lose a few pounds so let's move on. Let's talk politics. Also on the podcast this week, we've got uh, Nick Clegg, who clung on to his seat last year. Do you think that in the end you got the better deal rather than being trapped in a party which is going nowhere as he is? I didn't want to do another five years of opposition. I was uh, in opposition not as an MP for three years, 94 to 97, 13 years in government. And for me, coming out of government in 2010 was quite a big change in my life. And, um, and it was hard because you really missed that purpose. But five years in opposition um, was, was tough but important to do. I didn't want another five years with a Conservative um, majority. On election night, I didn't think that was going to be the outcome. I didn't think I would lose, but I didn't think the Conservatives would get a majority. I would have bet 90% would have had an unstable hung parliament which would last a short period of time. Once it became clear the Tories were going to win a majority, um, there was going to be a leadership contest for Labour, a vet was going to stand, it was definitely better for me and for everybody for me to be, to be out. And I think um, for, you know, I don't know, for Ed Miliband, for Nick Clegg, for a lot of those guys, um, I think being in, you know, when things have moved on a bit, is hard anyway. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, for Labour in Parliament, it's been um, so chaotic and dismal. For the last year, I think my um, my Labour MP friends have had a really, really hard time. It's sort of it's not what you're in politics for. What's going on? So, uh, no, I'm um, I really miss government and I miss politics and I'd love to be doing something to make things better. But I'm not sitting around thinking that I wish I was voting last Monday night. Yeah. To what extent do you think Ed Miliband is to blame for the mess that Labour Party's in? I think it's much more complicated than one person and uh, one decision. I think if you look at what's happening in politics in on the left and right of politics, you know, David Cameron and George Osborne have also been thrown out on their ear. If you look at what's happening in the Republican Party or to French politics, uh, there are trends happening and mistakes have been made and um, a, uh, a disappointment of electorates with the mainstream, which transcends parties and countries. Um, but we made some mistakes in the last parliament. And I think in retrospect, and this was not only Ed's decision, although of course he in the end um, shaped that with a small group around him, but clearly in retrospect the, the Electoral College changes for the Labour leadership were a catastrophe. They have ended up doing something which has never happened in the last hundred years, which was to, to hand control and the leadership to the hard left and uh, you know, it, it, there are really, really good reasons why MPs um, had a special position in choosing the, uh, the leader and there are good reasons to be sceptical about um, simply allowing people who pay a small amount of money to have a vote. And the great irony was that it was, it was supporters of David Miliband who thought the extra supporters would push things to the centre ground who got it most, uh, most wrong. I don't think necessarily Ed was thinking like that. The idea was that the centre ground people who didn't want to become fully paid up members but they'd want to be part of a exactly. uh, political party. These were people who advocated open, open primaries and I have to say I've just always been a sceptic yeah. about this. Political parties are very delicate and there is a, a careful balance which you strike and if you throw that all up, up in the air that it can be very destabilising and it was all thrown up in the air 
at a time when politics was changing anyway around the world, and the outcome is a, um, you know, it's pretty catastrophic because now the disconnect between the equilibrium of the Labour Party membership and the equilibrium of voters in the country, Labour voters in the country, is now so, so far apart. That makes it very, very hard for Labour to, um, to reach beyond its membership into the country. Uh, reading your book, I was struck quite how many times you mentioned gin and tonics, which I, um, I entirely agree with you on the merits of gin and tonics. And at various points, whether it's on planes and whatever, you obviously have a gin and tonic you had. But at one point, you also, t- <laughs> you also talked about your hope that you might one day uh, have a gin and tonic with Ed Miliband again. So also, you, you were very close to each other when you worked for Gordon, and then over time, you know, that's drifted further apart. Do you think you will sit down with him and drink with him one day? Well, the chapter was an optimistic chapter about... Um, the importance of friendship, the difficulties of sustaining friendships yeah. at the top of politics, and the fact that um, friendships can come back together again. And the reason for talking about gin and tonics was because it was Dennis Healy who served me and Bill Keegan a gin and tonic as he talked about his reconciliation with Tony Benn. I think probably Gordon Brown and Robin Cook were more whiskey than gin and tonic drinkers. But um, for, for reasons which I understand, even when I didn't like at the time, and emotionally I've never been happy about. Um, you know, Ed pulled away after we came out of the Treasury in the mid-2000s, the, the mid well before he became the leader of the Labour Party, and, um, and that, that, that just carried on. Yeah. And that's how things are, but it, we have loads of shared history and yeah. some great times together, and we did some really important things together, and um, you know, he, he's, I think of him as an old friend of mine, and... Um, so I really hope that, um, that, that, that we will have that chance in the future. I, I think we will. There's a lot in the book about, and in fact there's a whole chapter on purpose, the purpose of politics, and it's not just about sort of headlines and the surface personality. You, know, you, you quite clearly wanted to be in government doing stuff rather than just being around the flummery of politics. Do you think sometimes that gets a bit lost in, in the way that politics is either conducted by politicians or reported by the media or the way that voters view it? it, it most politicians are in it because they want to make things better. You can argue about the way they go about it. But. Well, part of the reason for writing the purpose chapter about being a member of Parliament is to make the point that unlike um, in other walks of life, if you're a footballer and you score a goal and you're on the front page, if you're a teacher and you get great results, then you can celebrate your school's achievements. But very many times, the success of a constituency MP in solving a sometimes catastrophic and overwhelming problem in an individual person's or family's life, by definition, can't be celebrated. Yeah. Uh, it can't be publicised. But that is the time when you really make an enormous difference. And I felt that um, I was writing the, the, the book for myself, for closure and catharsis, um, and I was thinking about my 27-year-old self starting out and things I would like to, um, to have known at the beginning. I was writing it for my mother-in-law to say, here's why we did all of this in 20 years and you put up with so much. <laughs> but I think I was also right. The thing I would like with this book, for it to be read by people who are not insiders and maybe don't know a lot about politicians, read often in uh, the press or on social media about these grasping MPs out for themselves and to think, well, actually... These are people who have, who have kids who they have to protect and they're fallible and make mistakes and uh, they can be ambitious and not succeed uh, but also they can take pride in doing really, really good things which nobody else knows about and that is why they put up with all of the, the hours and you know, the sometimes chaos and sometimes 
pressure and, um, and, and vilification. And I, I hope that people would read this and say, I understand it more now. There, there was a book by, which I read a couple of years ago, by Henry Marsh, a surgeon, a brain surgeon called Do No Harm, which is a series of chapters he writes where he just talks about what it's like to be a brain surgeon and how hard it is and how frustrating and how, he, how difficult it is to get things wrong, but how you have to keep going. And I read that and thought I understood that world and that, that, that profession much more than I'd ever done before because of that personal account. And I hope that there'll be some people who read this and understand you know, what it's like to be inside politics in the same kind of way, um, in a way which isn't normally in either a self-aggrandizing um, biography or in a newspaper article. That was what I was trying to do. Now, in the book, you describe one of the highlights of your life in politics as the moment when Dolly Parton put her hand on your inner thigh and whispered in your ear, I hope you don't mind me hitting on you. Does it, do you think Strictly tops that? Uh, no, I think that was, <laughs> that was... It was an absolutely... I mean, when Dolly Parton asked to come and see me, that ended up herself <laughs> quite overwhelming. And um, she has a foundation. Yeah. And she arrived with the leader of Rotherham Council, actually, to discuss um, their plans for... for it's, it was about giving books to, um, to young mums. And... Uh, but I was really keen to have this meeting. And it is true that she did put her hand on my inner thigh and say, do you mind if I hit upon you? And she was using that in the American sense of um, hit upon you, meaning, meaning asking for money. Short of cash. Whereas I, I wasn't bothered about what said she <laughs> I just said, you can hit upon me anytime you like. And the, the, great, the thing which was really funny was that my permanent secretary, David Bell, who um, was a great permanent secretary, we got on really well, but he um, didn't always... Um, fully appreciate the breadth of the meetings I was doing in a week and um, but he, he decided even though he's slightly disdainful to, um, to come to this meeting with Dolly Parton and at the end Dolly says I'd like a photo come have a picture and I say of course I say, um, I, say, I say maybe David you'd like to be in the photo I have never seen a man run round <laughs> a desk to get in a photo faster than David Bell and people, people still talk about the day Dolly Parton came into the department so it was um, an icon sat in my room and put her hand on my thigh well, amazing we can only hope that she gets invited to sing on Strictly and we can, we can rekindle <laughs> this relationship uh, Ed Balls uh, Speaking Out is out now uh, but for now it's back to the rehearsals so catch it Ed is giving me his account of how he's getting on how is he actually getting on <laughs> As it told you about me being all strict and stuff, probably. Is that why it's called Strictly? You have to be Strictly? <laughs> probably. Anyway, I think he's... For the amount of time that we've done so far, we're, on a, we're in good shape, I think. There's a lot of things to concentrate about, and, you know, I don't blame them because it is quite difficult, so I don't expect him to get it right straight away. But I do expect him to get it right eventually. How, how does it compare? Such a who have you, have, you had, who have you had before? Who have you all... Uh, I, this is my first year. This is your first this year? This is my first year. Oh, that's year. good. She's got nothing to compare it to. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good point, actually. He <laughs> so. might turn out to be brilliant. He is. And what's the, what's the regime like? Is it, is, it lots of, is it just rehearsing or are you doing sort of exercises and uh, Normally, as we come in, we do warm-up and exercising, just different body parts, stretching, strengthening, <laughs> uh, posture, you know, back muscles, things like that. But she's also giving me homework. I have at the, at the weekend to, to walk around at key moments, going into posture and uh, doing particular exercises. And she's also established a hotline to, um, to our family and our children who then send pictures. So um, Report. Reporting back. Yeah. And what about food? Are you on a strict diet? 
Well, no. Look, I, I bulked up really hard in, in August in order to have something to lose. Cause I thought it was important. <laughs> it, was impor- it was important. It was important. To see the improvement. It, it was important to see the improvement. But now um, uh, I... I'm actually finding I'm really hungry quite a lot because it's quite hard work yeah, all of this. Of but but I'm not eating too many carbs. We um, try to keep off carbs, no beers. Right? No beers. Apparently, I'm not sure whether this sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's the reason why I'm drinking all that gin. And the last question: Are we going to see that stripy shirt again? Maybe not that one, but a different one. <laughs> You'll see the sparkly one, I'm sure, because you're going to have to wear sparkles. And you're very pro fake tan, aren't you? Not that I'm very pro, it's a part of the whole experience, oh, isn't it? You've got to go full out. We're going to have to talk about this one off He's going to miss out if he doesn't do it. <laughs> Are you sure? Yes. Um, look, it's, it's the paper pants I'm worried about. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to be involved in any of you, you, and, you and paper pants. Well, thank, thank you both very much. No uh, best of luck. Cheers. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, you can tweet us, as ever, at Times Red Box or find us on Facebook. Do remember you can subscribe to the podcast via iTunes or on your Android device so it gets delivered to your phone every week. And as ever, if you want political news, analysis and gossip landing in your inbox every morning, sign up for my free Red Box email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash Red Box email. But for now, my thanks to Nick Clegg, Ed Balls and, of course, Catcher Jones. But for me, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.